Hey guys, before we get started with today's show, I want to let you know about a couple more great ESPN podcasts. First, the Adam Schefter podcast with my good friend, Adam Schefter. You can hear new episodes anytime posted Monday through Wednesday. And of course, the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst and Brian and the Hoop Collective post their episodes Tuesday and Friday mornings, bright and early. The playoffs are coming, so be sure to check it out. You can follow Brian Windhorst and the Hoop Collective as well as the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. The NBA Play-In Tournament is happening May 18th through the 21st. I bet you've heard something about that on ESPN. It's a new exciting twist to determine who makes the playoffs in both the Eastern and Western conferences. The 7th through 10th place teams vying for the 7th and 8th spots. Some teams are currently playing to avoid the tournament. Others are desperately trying to get in like the Washington Wizards with Bradley Beal, Russell Westbrook. At the end of the regular season, the 7th and 8th place teams square off. The winner gets locked into the 7th seed. The loser plays the winner of the game between the 9th and 10th place teams. Pay attention. There will be a test on this at the end of this pod with Tim Grover. And, of course, the winner of that game clinches the 8th seed. They get to play the 76ers and probably get waxed by them. But it's going to be dramatic. ESPN Radio and ESPN is your home for all the drama. Wednesday, May 19th, and Friday, May 21st. Hey guys, we're excited to bring the Woj Pod and the Low Post to you for a crossover virtual live show sponsored by Straight Talk Wireless. Hop on Zoom and join us for a live recording on Monday, May 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Zach and I are going to hit on everything. The regular season, looking forward to the playoffs and maybe even what free agency and the draft and the offseason may look like with Zach and I, we will we will get into it all. Registration is required and space is limited, but it's free to join. Head over to bit.ly slash Woj and low, all lowercase. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Woj and low, all lowercase. You can submit your Q&A questions when you register to join us for our virtual live podcast on May 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern, register now at bit.ly slash Low, all lowercase. We'll see you there. Hey, everyone. Welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. I'm here with the great Tim Grover, who is the author of a new book called Winning, The Unforgiving Race to Greatness. It will be everywhere in bookstores early next week beginning on May 17th. You can find it online now. Tim wrote it with Sherry Lesser-Wank, who also worked with Tim on his first book, the bestseller, Relentless. But Tim, first of all, great to be with you. How are you? Uh, Woj, I'm doing great. How about yourself? I imagine you are headed to Connecticut this weekend for the Hall of Fame induction ceremony where Michael Jordan is going to be the presenter for the late, great Kobe Bryant. Actually, I am, yes. Tim is perhaps most known for his, really his trailblazing work 
in the area of athletic performance, sports science, training with the elite basketball players in the world and, and with two of the greatest ever, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, certainly Dwayne Wade. But when you think about the people who knew Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant the best, who worked the closest with them, who knew what made them tick, who knew their strengths, their weaknesses, uh, knew them as people. Uh, outside of Phil Jackson, I would submit to you that no one knows those two greats better, worked more closely with them than Tim Grover. I agree with that. You know, Phil spent a lot of time with them. I got to spend more time with them away from practice, you know, a- a- after the, after that kind of stuff, away from the games during that time. So Phil got a chance to really spend a lot of time with them, you know, at practices, at the games, in the locker rooms and so forth. Once those things were over with, it was that, that was, it's kind of transitioned over to my time with them. Tim, describe how vital it was for Kobe Bryant and, and a lot of players of that generation and even maybe Michael's peers to get Michael's validation. I do. You know, it's funny. Everybody is looking for Michael's approval. That's like the ultimate acknowledgement from somebody. But Michael's standards are so high that when you finally earn that acknowledgement, you really have to earn that acknowledgement. He's just not going to give it to you because you've won a couple of championships or you've won an MVP or even if you did – you know, three in a row, a three-peat. It's like there's still more to do because most individuals, once they reach one of those goals, they don't have what's next. Michael always had what's next. So he wanted to see these individuals continue to work on their craft, continue to chase winning, continue to get better, not be satisfied. So if he, his thing was, if I acknowledge these individuals too soon, are they going to a place where they shouldn't be? He's very calculated about saying these things, ultimately saying stuff to continue to see how much more each individual, each player has in them to continue to win. Tim, you write in winning your new book, The Unforgiving Race to Greatness. You write in there, that Kobe worked harder, but Michael worked smarter. Describe the difference in how those two trained approach preparation. With Kobe, it was very difficult to get him to stop. He always wanted more. He always wanted more. He always wanted more. He always wanted more. And he would have a lot of pieces on his team that – had a hard time coexisting together at certain times in his career. Michael's team was very cohesive. It was a small group. Everybody knew their role. Everybody knew what they were supposed. Everybody knew what they were supposed to do, and they did. They did it. He trusted very few. He trusted very few people. And when you told Michael enough, that's it for the day. He would literally say. I hired you to do this part. I trust you. Enough enough is enough, whether it's practice, whether it's a workout, whether it's an extra workout, whether it's going through shots, whatever it, whatever it would may be. With Kobe, 
it was never enough. It was always more. It was always more. It was always more. And the biggest difference between the two of them was I actually had to teach Kobe and work with him how to stop. And not only how to stop from a training standpoint, but also teaches muscles how to stop to to make sure his career could last longer. Tim, I remember so many times being in L.A., being out west with you and Mike Procopio, uh, who's the great skills trainer, and Kobe used to call his Swiss Army knife, uh, who would help him break down film and uh, attack different defenses or different opponents and and and, and do on-the-court stuff when you were working on his body and his mind and being with both of you uh, out in L.A. And the hours that you had to keep with Kobe, uh, him calling you at all hours of the night to go and work out, to say, let's go to a gym or let's go grab dinner late. What was it like being on call with Kobe in those days? He did it often, often. I would get these calls. You know, you'd finish the game. The game gets done 10, 1030. Then after treatment, by the time you leave the locker room and everything, you know, he'd go in his direction many times. Sometimes we'd go together. And he would say, I'd get a call at 3 o'clock in the morning. And you couldn't turn your phone off. And The conversation was always like, what are you doing? I'm sleeping. That's what you should be doing. You know. And he wanted to talk about something or say, hey, let's go get some, let's go get some shots up because he was watching the film from the game or whoever he was going to compete against next and saw something that he needed to he needed to work on. And he couldn't get that rest until he actually worked on that thing. That was that was his body and his mind couldn't really rest until he knew whatever he had to do to get that win that he worked on it meticulously so the call was it was 24 it was 24 7 and that lifestyle wasn't for it wasn't for everyone but i was i was accustomed to it it didn't have the same schedule with michael michael was more hey this is my practice this is my practice time this is when i'm going to work out the the fluctuation with mj came more when we were when we were traveling but Kobe, yeah, even if he did his morning workouts, you knew you were just it, it just wasn't done. There was there was more there was more to come. And oftentimes we would get in heated discussions about, no, you're not going to do more. You, you, you're just not. You've played 30 plus minutes. This is what happened in the game. Uh, you need to just you, we, this is not the time to go get it to go get another workout. Or if we did go get a nerf another workout we'd walk through something we'd walk through just shooting some free throws or walk through a cord or or did or did some uh you know did some activation stuff on his muscles did some release stuff to kind of uh get him ready for the next get him ready for the next day tim i remember being with you and kobe in orange county i believe at, at jave's that restaurant that uh, he loved to go to, and we were with him at. We were with him together a few times. Kobe telling the story about training with the Navy SEALs in a particular off season, and actually asking them to show him how someone would be waterboarded, and experiencing <laughs> that. What, what do you remember about that? 
I do remember that. You know why I remember it? Because he made us all do it. We all had times of everybody was timing each other to see how long they could they could stay they could stay under. And we and we're we were extremely competitive. We're extremely competitive individuals. I mean, it was um, it, it was it was intense. It, it was it was extreme. It was extremely intense. Um, I, I was actually able to stay longer under there than than Kobe was, which he was not ha- which he was not happy about. And, and of course, then he wants to go. Let's do this. Let's do it again. And we were, and that's where I'm talking about. You got to make them stop. You got to make, you got to make them, you got to make them stop. And the stop was more for me than it was for him because I didn't know if I could duplicate what I just did. <laughs> but that was Kobe. He was just like constantly challenging himself, pushing himself beyond what other individuals, other individuals would do. I mean, you know, in the book winning, we talk about it where he actually played an all-star game with a concussion. He knew he had a concussion. I knew he had a concussion, but he just like, I got, I, I got to know what this feels like. I got to know what this feels like. So Kobe was always like pushing himself beyond, you know, when we were doing, when we did the Olympic trials, you know, he wanted to incorporate, uh, this was in uh, Arizona during the summer. And it gets pretty hot over there. And he want, you know, he goes, I want to incorporate, uh, I want to incorporate biking into my training. All right, we can do that. I thought he meant like getting on a stationary bike. He's like, no, no, I actually want a bike. So we had to go out and he wasn't going to bike alone. I biked with him, security biked with him, a couple of his Nike reps biked with him, but he had to ride when the temperature was at its peak. Not like our, where everybody else says, you know, let's get up before the sun a sun goes out, a sun comes up. No, he wanted to ride in the most extreme heat because he wanted to know what his limits were and how mentally to go beyond that. So dealing with the Navy SEALs, seeing what they had to what they had to go through. And having and knowing that his team, obviously, they're not going to be able to keep up with him. But knowing that we were all in to participate in the things that he wanted us to participate in. Tim, we talked about how important it was for Kobe to get that validation from Michael. And I remember there was a point in his career where he wasn't getting it. And I believe it was after his fifth title. Uh, we were together, I think it was in Minneapolis and I was doing a, sitting down to do an interview with him and he started to talk about (laughs) the impact that Michael Jackson had had on his career, the time he had spent at Neverland with Michael when he was just in the league and watching how Michael created and his great attention to detail, his creative process in making music and how he incorporated that into his basketball and his training. I remember asking him specifically about Michael Jordan and he immediately took it to Michael Jackson. And 
what I remember was there had been some list of great players, either active or all-time, a top three or a top five that Michael had said in an interview somewhere that did not include Kobe. And Kobe was, Kobe was hurt. And, and it was what I sensed was it was his way of telling Michael, well, you weren't really my influence. It was Michael Jackson. And um, I just remember Kobe talking about reaching out to Michael and everybody thinking he and Michael were really close. And it wasn't that then. Uh, it was a very different dynamic, and I think you saw Michael talk about that at Kobe's memorial service and the eulogy, and he's, I think he spoke to the evolution of that relationship, but it was, it was pretty unique, and you, I think at times, were, were sort of in, in the middle of it or a part of it or hearing it perhaps from both sides. It was, you know, it's always been an interesting time. Yeah, Kobe reached out to MJ all, all the, uh, uh, quite often, you know, during text, their phone, but it was more to gather info. It was more to gather information on how to play certain guys and how, how to handle certain situations and obviously how to deal with Phil, you know, how, how to, how to deal, how to deal with Phil and how to keep chase, chasing the next thing, chasing the next, chasing the next win. But there were points where it was just Michael says, Hey, there's some things you just got to figure out for yourself. I figured out things for myself. You got to fit. You got to figure out things for my uh, for yourself. Listen, <laughs> you have my co- you have the coach that coached me. You have the trainer that t- that trained me. Uh, what more if what more information could you po- could you possibly could you possibly want or you could possibly need? Some things you need to just figure out for yourself. And yes, there's always going to be a there's always going to be a competitive nature between 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 those two and at some point it's just like i've given you everything i'm going to give you now you put now you need to put your own pieces into the pieces that i've already given you you talk about this in winning and of course the book the new book by tim grover winning the unforgiving race to greatness with sherry lesser wank it is available everywhere may 17th it'll be released you can go online and get it. The Mamba mentality, and you write about this in the book, you were there for the creation of it. And there's very few people, Tim, as you know, that can come up with a nickname or create a persona for themselves that actually sticks. Uh, A lot of people get mocked for coming up with nicknames. Very few could do it the way Kobe did. He did. You were there and a part of it. How did the Mamba mentality come to be? True competitors. Really, really true competitors, true winners. And this is just not in sports. This is in broadcasting. This is in teaching. This is in business. This is everywhere. You know, there is a competitive side that is so freaking dark. It's something that keeps you keeps you lit when nothing else does. It's like being the first one to break to, to break that story, to get that breaking news, to find something out before everybody else. It's the competitive side that's in each individual's personality. And Kobe had a dark side also, and he had to come up with his own it had to come up with his own personality. And he kind of created the black mamba when he was going, you know, he was going through a very difficult time personally and wanted a place 
to go mentally where he could continue to perform at the highest level. So his personal life was going through something that was, you know, very public out there, but he still had to perform at the highest level during those times. So he had to create an alter ego. And knowing Kobe, listen, Kobe's not, Kobe, what is he going to do? He's going to choose the most dangerous, venomous snake out there for his alter ego. He's just not going to choose anything. He's not going to choose an eagle. He's not going to choose a rhino. You know, in Kobe's mind, he had to come up with something that was like, what is the most dangerous, venomous thing out there for his alter ego? And he actually got this from seeing the movie Kill Bill, where there's an assassin who's actually named the Black Mamba. And he was like, he watched it and he was like, that's me. Because what was he? He was an assassin on the court. He was an assassin on the court. And listen, all the assassins you know, all right, <laughs> they got, they're assassins and a part of them are also snakes. So Kobe adopted that alter ego and that became the Black Mamba. That became Mamba mentality. And we've had so many individuals out here that talk about Mamba mentality. Obviously, you know, it, it's, it's prevalent now that he's, that he's no longer with us. And I try to tell people this all the time. I said, Mama mentality has actually destroyed more careers than it's helped. Because mama mentality, it's not a mindset. Everyone thinks it's a mindset. It's not a mindset. It's actually a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. And, you know, you've had times where obviously you had a great relationship with him. So he would talk, he would talk to you in a different way, but there were times that he was very, he was short, he was short with everybody. And you could just see him giving that glare. You've seen different interviews, you know, different reporters that you could just tell that he just didn't, he just didn't like them for, for whatever, forever, for whatever reason. And nothing they, those individuals did was going to, was going to change, was going to change his mind. And he was the same way. If you watch videos of him, there's a there's a you know there's a there's a thing that's always kind of posted on Instagram about uh, when he was in uh, after they were up 2-0 in the Orlando series, and people were like, "Why weren't you smiling?" You know, job not finished. Well, that's that's mama mentality. No, that the other phrase is where they ask, "Well, if if other players, what do you want other players to say about you?" And Kobe's was like, I don't give a shit what they think about me. Those are lifestyle decisions. Those, those are that that's a lifestyle of mama mentality. That's just not that's just not a mindset. The training, the competitiveness, the study, the studying the film, the sacrifices, you know, outworking outworking everybody, going against individuals, and you know, going out there and scoring at a clip that a lot of individuals just can't, just can't fathom. And going in games where you literally go two for 18 and you continue to shoot. And then when it's the game, when the game's on the line, I still want, I still want the ball. I still want the ball. 
everybody likes to talk about mama mentality as a mindset. And I tell you, it's way, if you only live it as a mindset, you'll never, you're never going to understand it. And the reason I said why it destroyed more careers and it actually helps because when you try to live that lifestyle where everything is that way, it's all consuming. It is all consuming. And majority of his career, he played that way. He did. It wasn't until towards the end of his career when he knew that the championships weren't going to be there. Then he became a little bit more open to individuals. You would see him. You would see him smile more. You would see him relate to other players. But that only happened because number six was just not going to happen. Tim, Kobe's obsession with gaining an edge physically, mentally, and as his, as his career advanced, as he got older, I mean, I remember him using the Olympics as a vehicle to gain a mental edge on players he was going to have to compete with to try to win titles with, while a lot of his peers were using the Olympics to team build, to build super teams over time. I remember in 2008, Kobe kind of fixated on LeBron James, looking to gain a mental edge there. He knew physically LeBron was surpassing him, and but LeBron hadn't won a championship yet. He tried to impose, uh, I think, a mental edge on him in that 2012, it was different. Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant. I remember, I mean, we were in London, and I remember seeing you there and talking about it. Kobe would, you know, push Russ to, hey, you, you should be winning scoring titles. Why is KD winning it? And to kind of plant a seed in his head and kind of send him back to OKC thinking about a scoring title. Whether it worked or not, I don't know. But but Kobe was always working on those parts of the game and, and, and as he got older, how did you see all of that evolve with, with Kobe? Oh, totally. Yeah, listen, we would go in USA basketball and we'd get there. We'd get there extremely early, do our work. And we would literally watch everybody. First of all, he didn't want to see anybody doing what we were doing, you know, and every now and then <laughs> we'd get finished and the other guys would just be getting started and they would see Kobe walking in and everybody like, oh, Kobe, you just getting here? He goes, no, I've been here for three hours. <laughs> I've already I've already been I've already been here for I've already been here for three hours. So what he did was he would sit during that time while everybody else would work out. Everybody else would go through uh, through drills and all that. And he would sit and we would analyze. Their habits how they approached practice, how they came out of the locker room, what time they showed up, how many shots they got up, what were their mannerisms during the shots, understanding where their weak po- where their weak points were, were they only during that during the times where they're only working on their strengths or were they working on their weaknesses, seeing all these things. So yeah, he used that time during the Olympics to like re- really, really study everybody in a framework that he wasn't able 
to see them before. He just wasn't able to see them before because what he wanted to do is Kobe had a great way of handling the battlefield that was going on in his mind. He wanted to plant different different minds in other people's heads so he had a little bit of an edge on it because he knew if I can just have that little edge, whether it be physically or mentally, and obviously some of the athletes that you met, they were younger and they were more physically gifted than he was at that point. So it was like, okay, I'm, I can't close the gap on them physically, but I can definitely extend the gap of where I am from a mental standpoint and where these individuals are from a mental standpoint and how I could use that to, to get an, to get an advantage because that's, you know, to him in his mind. And where this is one of the chapters we talk about in winning is like winning isn't heartless, but you use your heart less. So in those times when he was, when he was going for those championships, he was going for the gold medals, uh, he was using his heart less. It wasn't heartless, but he was using his heart less because he wanted that win. Now, towards the end of his career, just like you said, he started to use his heart more to let uh, people inside and see a side of him that very few knew, very few knew. It was for me, even myself, I was I would sit there and I would watch. I was like, man, who is this guy? Because the times that I was with him, I really I very rarely saw that side. I did from time to time, but I very but it was just for a moment. It was just for a moment. So it was it was either unique to us. The person that we were used to seeing was the post Kobe Bryant when he retired, how competitive he was with his daughter and his basketball and his bas and his girls basketball team, where they would they would have three hour practices and two and a half hours of those practices were strictly on defense or where they one year where they played a team and that team had beat his daughter by like 20 points or something. And then next year when they got a chance to play them, <laughs> he beat their he beat that team by 50. You know, it's just the, and then going out and like I always said this, I honestly believed Kobe said once his retirement, because that that mama mentality, it might have stopped on the basketball. It might have stopped on the basketball court, but it didn't stop from a competitive standpoint. To me, Kobe had two goals that he he set out and that he had put into put into play one was for his daughter to be the first female in the NBA. That was not the WNBA, the NBA. That's what he was, that's what he was training her for. And the second, he knew, he goes, I own LA on the basketball court. I've owned that, I've owned that territory for a while so now I just want to own LA that was my whether it's in Hollywood whether it's from an entrepreneurship I want to own LA 
you know, I got a chance to see a side of him that very few people got a chance to see. Very, very, very few people. I mean, he, we had, we had this, we had this no judgment relationship. We could talk about anything. And everything was kept strictly, strictly, strictly between, strictly between us. I miss the, I miss those, I miss those conversations. I, I miss just being able to reach out to him and just, hey man, you good? And him texting me back and saying, yeah, I'm good. Or I'm going to be in Chicago or I'm going to be, I'm going to be here. It, with him, it was always about that next win. I mean, one thing that I talk about in this book that that I have a very hard time discussing with individuals is I would always tell him, I said, Kobe, we don't have time. We don't have time. Man, do I wish I was wrong on that. Boy, do I wish I was wrong on that. We all do, Tim. The book is winning. The unforgiving race to greatness. It will arrive in bookstores on May 18th, Tuesday of next week. You can pre-order at timgrover.com. My sense is it is will be on its way to being another bestseller for Tim. Tim, this was... Uh, Terrific to spend this time with you, talk about Kobe and Michael and your new book, Catch Up With You. And uh, I know you'll have, it's going to be a moving uh, time at the Hall of Fame this weekend uh, and and look forward to catching up with you again soon, Tim. Thanks. One thing I'd like to mention, like, listen, you know, everybody knows the book is going to launch May 18th. So for everyone that pre-orders the book, for everyone that pre-orders the book, on May 17th, I'm doing a live online event only for individuals that pre-order the book to have my first discussion with them about the book and winning. You can go to timgrover.com and all the links for to order the book are right there. All right, Woj, thank you, brother. Appreciate you as always. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, the great Tim Grover, author of Winning the Unforgiving Race to Greatness. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod. Wherever you get your podcast, be sure also to listen to The Low Post with Zach Lowe, The Hoop Collective with Brian Windhurst, And the Adam Schefter podcast with my good friend, Adam Schefter. We'll catch you next time.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.